Hi, this is Andy Schwartz, the Vice President of Content and Communities for the Incentive Research Foundation. Thanks for joining us today. Welcome to the IRF webinar on the IRF's latest release, the 2019 Voice of the Market, the Use of Non-Cash Rewards and Recognition. If this is your first time with us, the Incentive Research Foundation is a nonprofit research foundation. And in the last 10 years alone, we've de dedicated over $2 million to research and education on the topics of incentives and motivation in the workplace. You can read all of our research at www.theirf.org. Um, so on to our signature study, the 2019 Voice of the Market, or as our uh, IRF president, Mal Van Dyke, has dubbed it, the Program Owner Manifesto. Welcome, Mel. Hi, Andy. Good to hear you. <laughs> love, the, love this title. Um, so the study reports on the voice of the market. Can you tell us a little bit about who the IRF researchers interviewed this year? Yeah, absolutely. So it was actually a single researcher who is incredibly good at this. And uh, she went out and spent hours, um, I'm sure upwards of 60 hours in conversation uh, with program owners of reward and recognition programs here in the US. And the people that she talked to came from many different backgrounds. They represented many different program types. Um, they came from a number of different industries. Um, they were running reward and recognition programs that were as little as $25,000 to over millions of dollars. Uh, and the common thread, though, between all of them was that um, none of them really heavily used or engaged with um, incentive, the incentive industry or um, providers and suppliers on a uh, significant basis. And our goal was really to understand um, what, the, what their perspective was, what would they consider to be relevant and compelling to this topic. And, and that's kind of a cheer point, Andy, from the Dub standpoint, standpoint, like what, what would be their manifesto? They could tell us um, what, they, what they needed. And um, she did that in hour-long conversations. There was a survey instrument, but they were very organic conversations, very relaxed, very open. Um, and actually between this set of research that we just completed um, a few months ago and the work that we did uh, the year prior, we now have a database of almost 100 conversations um, with program owners in this space. Okay, and now when we say program owners, we, we, I've seen we've used a lot of different terms to use this group of people, people who are in charge of incentive programs. So we also call them program managers, we call them end users, but throughout this study, we're calling them program owners. Right, correct. Yep. Absolutely. And, you know, I think what we... And again, they might have different titles within their organizations as well, right? It could be VP of Marketing, it could be um, VP of HR, it could be um, VP of Rewarding Recognition and Incentives, VP of Incentive Travel, or uh, Manager of Incentive Travel. There's a number of different um, titles that they might have within their organization. Uh, but we you know, kind of put them under one umbrella, say Program Owner or uh, Program Manager. 
And the reason that we wanted to get to this particular audience, and honestly, it's, um, <laughs> it's kind of a, interesting because we know now that 84% of all U.S. businesses use non-cash rewards and recognition in some manner, right? That's what the Incentive Federation study told us. Um, but we also know that about 30 to 40 percent of that population engages heavily with our industry. So when you kind of think, you know, why? Why would we put ourselves through? You know, this isn't necessarily inexpensive research to do, and um, it's very time-consuming. It's um, very labor-intensive. Why would we go out and do that? And partially, it's because, um, you know, Andy, as you're saying, you know, we use the word program managers, but it encompasses a lot of different types of people, and many who haven't engaged yet with our industry. Um, and we, when we're normally talking with a lot of these individuals, we have a frame. So when I go out and I, and we're doing research on behalf of IRS and I'm doing quantitative research, right? I have to give people frames. I have to give them ways to think about what I'm asking so that I know that we're talking about the same thing. I have to give them a definition of what incentive is. I have to give them a definition of recognition. Um, so, and I have to ask them the different types of tools that they use and, and rewards and give definitions there. Likewise, you know, if I'm running those programs, if I'm a, a supplier or provider, you know, as I'm speaking with my um, clients or potential clients, I have a frame um, that I'm coming from. So what we wanted to do in this research is really talk with program owners from their perspective about the programs and how they've been developed and how they can be improved, but most importantly, really in their own language without any of those frames um, kind of being wrapped around it. Excellent. So it was 45 interviews, each of them about an hour. That's, that's a lot. Um, and I see that um, our researchers came up with, with 10 takeaways. Um, seems like a lot of them were um, program owners telling us what they think of their programs and how they run them. And then another probably half of these takeaways are, are how can the industry and the Incentive Research Foundation help them? Uh, so let's dive in and see what you found out. Um, I guess to start off, how, how do programmers, program owners feel about the work that they do? And this is, you know, it's, it's uh, in the report, it's the last finding I think we list in the report, but to me, honestly, I think it's probably the most important thing that we heard, and that's, you know, the individuals that we had the opportunity to go out and speak with, absolutely, you know, they love their job, they love their audience, they love their programs, um, they love the, the status quo of what they do. They, um, they're very vested and extremely proud of the initiatives that they've created and we'll talk about this a little more but so many of them are self-taught program designers and they have this super super rich and very full um and very critical i think that's the important word expertise on their firm and specifically um within their firm that microcosm of you know what matters to the firm how to drive the needed outcomes what works with their particular audiences and as we'll talk about they've taken a long trajectory sometimes to get there. They don't just want these programs to be good enough. They want something that, they want programs that are really emotionally engaging um, and, and ensuring that participants um, are, are aware of their objectives and, um, to, and again, engaged in them. But, you know, as you speak with them, um, they've worked really hard on these programs and don't necessarily immediately see um, anything wrong with their programs. And if they did, 
um, they would correct it very quickly because that's been their experience over the past. And uh, part of their um, love of kind of how things are working currently is that they're not really aware of some of the services that are available in the industry. And they've had this super steep learning curve um, where, they, where they've had to kind of figure it out on their own, so to speak. Um, but they feel like they've done what they were asked to do by the organization and have this great hard-won expertise um, that, you know, when you combine that with how successful their programs are, it really creates um, a level of satisfaction with their programs and um, with how things are currently running. Okay, so I mean, it's pretty clear that incentives and incentive programs mean different things to different people and different companies. Um, one size does not fit all in this industry. How did the uh, interviewees this year uh, define incentives, rewards, and recognition, and how do they work differently to support these programs? Yeah, and I think you know one of the the other big takeaways we had is that we learned um, that you know the individuals that we were speaking with know that people-driven results um, require not just a single tool, but a number of tools, a number of paths to get to the same uh, the same destination, so to, so to speak. And uh, they have very specific strategies that they tailored then to their their different audiences and their uh, different objectives. Um, and that means they actually take a very expansive view of what falls under the reward and recognition umbrella. And they use many of the common, you know, incentive, incentive recognition and rewards that we're aware of, gift cards for, uh, and they'll talk about how those are super easy to administer, uh, especially in large numbers. They'll talk about how um, merchandise creates buzz and excitement and has a a long memory. They'll talk about how travel is this you know, great kind of ultimate reward. Um, it's very expensive, but for the programs which it's used, it's absolutely worth it. And how you know team events and meetings can build, um, you know, not just be a celebration, but can help actually build teams. So they definitely put under that frame many of the things that we talk about. But you know, they also put under that frame um, free lunches, time off. Um, professional development opportunities, um, a number of different things that we might not typically always think of. Um, and they might use all or some or <laughs> many of these things based on uh, the type and scale of their programs. And they're very deliberate and strategic about how those tools are used. And I know there's a lot of conversation about, you know, is it an incentive, is it a reward, is it recognition? And really what I think is most critical for, under, for us to understand is, you know, when we're working with organizations, how, do, um, how are those, those terms used within the organization? Because those terms have uh, a life of their own within the organization that uh, we need to be aware of. So with so many elements that are available and uh, as options in, in program design, how, how do program manager or program owners um, figure out how to use all of these things and, and uh, you know, what are the top takeaways for program design from a study like this? Yeah. Um, well, you know, we learned that all of the organizations didn't engage deeply with some of the resources we're, we're familiar with in the industry and their program creation. The company still had very developed, very flexible, very purposeful 
uh, programs and an approach to their program design. Um, you know, we heard a number of them talk about having long-term initiatives, uh, such as top performer, ongoing recognition programs that are, are supplemented with uh, short-term programs targeted on more immediate results. And one of the examples that we talk about in the paper is a, a franchise restaurant where they had long-term programs focused on customer satisfaction and morale, and then, you know, let stores choose as well some of the uh, shorter-term programs that, where they're trying to drive immediate results, something, well, whatever actually was important to the individual store location, and that might have been wait time or uh, poor attendance. And then, you know, they also had different design based on whether it was a soft objective or a hard objective. So you had a, a soft goal um, for your program, something like um, morale or culture or teamwork. Um, and I just heard a greatest term yesterday, these soft power, they're calling it, the soft power types of opportunities within organizations. Now, they might have um, recognition and team events to support those soft goals and the focus would be on more lower cost options on helping people connect on celebrations but if they're uh, for the harder goals um, for those types of programs sales service customer set they'd have a larger focus on what might traditionally be considered tangible rewards including things like uh, incentive travel and those different types of object objectives and design also meant that um, program owners had different metric approaches. Um, they, they, all, they had data uh, that, that surrounded and supported their programs. And for those thoughtful programs, they knew that, you know, they're not really required often to present it to their, um, back to their organization. Now, for some of those harder goal types of programs, they felt the metrics were built into the program. So again, although there wasn't um, a great deal of necessarily direction from uh, what we might consider, you know, traditional industry resources, the programs were incredibly developed, flexible, uh, targeted, and purposeful. Yeah, no, it sounds like uh, as far as design and measurement, it's it's an art and a science. Um, so, given that there's they're always changing and adapting their the, the programs, how are program owners gaining knowledge to to continue to excel in their their programs? Yeah, and I think this is, a, again, a really key finding as well, which is why we, obviously, why we extracted it, and that, um, you know, it's, these programs, obviously, again, are very developed, um, but that was a hard-earned path <laughs> to get there. Again, they didn't, these individuals hadn't really um, engaged external providers, weren't really aware of the deep expertise that might be available to them, so they were kind of skeptical about another organization coming in and knowing their firm and knowing their audience. And when you look at how the programs developed over time, that's because it was a lot of trial and a lot of adaptation. Um, and sometimes there's, you know, not just, you know, a couple, but hundreds of rounds of minorly tweaking the program over time on uh, asking for feedback and then just slowly over time uh, tweaking the program to where it fits the organization's uh, needs. Um, and I was talking with um, one one very good friend who might even be joining today who had said, you know, she went out and talked to 400 of her managers in the program to understand what needed to happen and how to keep them engaged in the program. Um, and I think that's such a testament to how vested 
um, program owners are and how you know they'll they'll use all the resources available to them to test and tweak the program uh, to make it better. That's amazing. Four hundred in in-house interviews to get feedback on how the program is going. Um, do program owners also look outside? How does the competition impact how uh, these programs are designed? Yeah, and I think that's kind of interesting because I think that's where we start to shift into ways that our industry can really start to be uh, more help to these individuals. And the first thing to note, I think, is that executive and participant satisfaction is the primary metric that everyone uses to determine the success of their program. So step one is executives and uh, the participants have to be uh, satisfied with what's happening. But, you know, secondary to that is really looking at what our competitors are doing. And that's where we can help by providing more benchmarks. Um, you know, one of the things that they told us is, as program owners, they're trying to balance two, two very important viewpoints. The viewpoints of HR, who wants culture, a strong culture and engagement, uh, with the viewpoint of the CFO, who wants the quote-unquote appropriate level of investment in these programs. Um, so if competitors have reward and recognition programs or incentive programs of some ilk, then they feel it's really minimum requirement that they do uh, something in that vein to attract and retain uh, top employees, but also maintain customer satisfaction and loyalty. But interestingly, what kind of, and I thought this was fascinating, what a competitor means is different to, based on the type of business. So if you looked at organizations that were, um, uh, had more trans, highly transportable skills, so industries like retail or food service, um, who they considered competitors were more local or regional uh, for comparison and benchmarks. Um, if, however, they were highly specialized skill industries like tech or pharma or finance, what they were really looking for is in-industry benchmark. And I think um, that was so good for me to hear uh, as, you know, kind of running a research foundation, uh, because that is a lot of work that we're starting to do. And just as a, a you know, quick note, you know, last month, we released our top performing uh, tech company study where we looked at what top performing tech companies do differently as they design the reward and recognition programs than all others. And we found, you know, I'm not certainly going to go through all the different types of um, things that they do differently, but, you know, we found things like um, they're more likely to agree that their executives are strong supporters of reward and recognition as a competitive advantage. They're actually twice as likely to agree. And so it's not just that they do some reward and recognition to stay competitive, but as a top company, they view these programs as a competitive advantage to what they do. We also found, and, and now know that it's um, that statistically, top performing tech, com tech companies are more likely to have a single program for the entire company. So there's kind of getting back to the design element. Um, and we also know that top performing tech companies are more likely to use all the different award types in the portfolio, and in fact, significantly more likely to use award points and group incentive travel. So there is a, you know, I think if we look to program owners and say, you know, one of the things that they're, they're saying is we could have, we could use some help in understanding um, and benchmarking the competition um, instead of just looking at what average businesses are doing, understanding by those highly important verticals, what top performing companies are doing um, gives us a lot of 
um, uh, fodder for support there. All right. Well, returning to, to Voice of the Market study, um, what was the biggest challenge that our program owners reported? Um, yeah. So, you know, again, when you go out and you talk with them, the primary thing is they really, their programs are fine. Mm -hmm. um, they've, they've been working on them for a long time. Um, they've, they've slowly tweaked them to be very effective. But when you start talking about engagement and communication, um, it's, it's a really interesting conversation because they know that participant engagement is key, um, but there is so much noise to break through. Uh, especially as it pertains to organizational communications. And that was true whether we were talking about sales programs or talking about employee programs or channel programs. There is just so much noise on the wire that how you get and maintain participant engagement in the program was uh, a key topic of conversation, especially in uh, organizations that are high turnover, um, and have non-technical environments. So you think of like retail or service or labor environments. Um, and which again, that, you know, obviously face-to-face -face communications are gonna be very critical there. Um, and even where there is a technological um, element to the population, to the participants, that, you know, technical capabilities and adaptation varies widely across a number of organizations. Not all populations within an organization are very tech savvy. Um, so, you know, there's, in folks as a program owner, you've got to use different modes for different populations, whether that's digital or paper. Um, so I think you know, one of the areas that um, came out <laughs> maybe loud and clear is that anything that we can do to help with uh, the adoption and, and breaking through the noise of uh, the, the organization um, and keeping participants engaged, the better. Okay, so uh, program owners are having trouble getting their information to uh, participants. Um, how are program owners getting information about uh, running their programs? Yeah, this was super insightful for us because one of the things we learned is that we can really do a better job of helping program owners find people and resources to help them do their job better. Um, the internet is a scary place for a number of reasons, um, but uh, for program owners, particularly, you know, when they go out there, um, you know, when you ask them about what they were able to find around uh, reward and recognition or incentives programs, they will just say, you know, I, don't, I found some stuff. They you know, couldn't really point to any direct resources. And, you know, use the example of, you know, if I search for engagement, I might get things for, you know, good places to get engaged in my local area. If I talk about recognition, I might get random things like, you know, um, uh, facial recognition. Um, as uh, as a pullback, so um, you know, just relying solely on the internet isn't really a good um, tool always, um, and it's it's kind of lonely out there. Is the other way <laughs> I keep talking about it. Most program owners we spoke with didn't really know anyone else uh, that had their same job, um, and nor did they have a network that they readily plugged into of people with like jobs. So. You know, essentially, their knowledge, uh, their the base of their knowledge was was built within their company, and they're you know they're piecing it together from various resources. They're talking to peers, they're talking to people who participate in the program, they're trying new things, they're um, you know talking to people who might have been in programs in other organizations, um, you know. But 
and what's fascinating about that is really besides the testing and learning, word of mouth is really their favorite way to learn. So I think one of the best things that we can do as an industry is really help program owners connect with each other um, on information and, um, and, and connect them with information on their job activities, which was good to see this come up again, I would say, Andy, as you know, from the IRS perspective, because that was one of the real intents uh, for putting together our communities on LinkedIn, where we do have a closed group for, for corporate end users and program owners so that they can connect with both our data and our data in the industry and with each other. All right. Well, we're nearing the end here. We have a couple more uh, slides to go through. Um, you know, as far as administration, sometimes programs are large and all-encompassing for an organization. How, uh, how do program owners think of the role of non-cash rewards, and does that, how does that get executed across an organization? Yeah, I think it's super important to note that program owners, they, they know two things, two very important things. One, they know that reward and recognition has to be memorable to have an impact, right? And, and they also know, sub to that, that mem you know, memorable can mean different things to different people. And number two, they know the difference between cash and non-cash. They know that non-cash rewards are more memorable and cash is not. They understand those tools have different purposes. So this, you know, probably mess that still exists that, you know, no one really understands the difference between cash and non-cash. Well, you know, the individuals that we were speaking with absolutely understood that, which kind of led us to, well, why in so many of, you know, these programs is cash still in the mix? And you know, what we heard are really two reasons. You know, for some audiences, having rewards that were very easily usable, highly fungible, could be used in many places, was really considered more appropriate than less flexible awards. So for people like retail workers and call centers and servers, uh, you know, the program owners understand that there's a, might be a memorability, quote unquote, trade-off, but they want to respect the financial realities of their audience. And this is, it's a question of fairness. And I think that's really important for us to understand. You know, things like um, cash and open gift cards can be seen as easy, well, certainly open gift cards, easier to administer than cash when still meeting a highly important need um, within very important audiences within their group. So um, that also kind of leads us to this, you know, one of our findings around scale and administration and personalization, um, which is the things that they're trying to balance. They know that they need to balance um, large scale administration and distribution of rewards with really on point personalization to make their programs memorable. And administering to scale will a lot of times win out over personalization. They, they want higher personalization in their programs, but it's not the uh, cost offset for you know, administering and selecting and issuing those words of how that would all happen. And um, it uh, just is not really known to them. So I think one of the ways that we can really help is in providing ideas on ways to administer highly personalized rewards very effectively. So there's, I mean, there's so many big ideas and, and concepts of scaling. Um, how do program owners sort of balance the, their, these big ideas with, with some of the limitations of, of time, resources, or even cooperation um, with the reality of the situation um, versus what they would really love to do? Right. And there's lots that the program owners would love to do, right? Lots of things that they would love to see happen. Like they would love to launch launch the program with a super beloved executive and have a huge team meeting. Oh, hey, but you can't ship servers from multiple sites during core business hours from across different areas. And 
yeah, we'd love to do frequent reminders and update, updates across locations. That would be awesome, but who crash them? And all employees are on one platform. And, uh, you know, and yes, we know front, frontline managers are key and that they're um, many times the face of the program, but we're not um, sure uh, that we have the tools to, to really test it and get uh, and engage the managers where they are. So I think anything that we can do to provide program owners with ideas on how to scale their program to make it impactful um, and engage managers, um, making it very practical as well, is really, really important. Uh, which kind of brings us to uh, the, the end there. So there you have it. You know, it's, this is the Program Owners Manifesto. After, you know, nearing 100 conversations, 45, and, uh, 45 to 46 in this round, if we could go out and talk with program owners more, um, what they would tell us, they love their programs and they love their jobs and um, they've applied blood, sweat, and tears to make these programs happen. And the places that we can really offer help are looking at, at providing benchmarking, um, constantly providing new ideas on ways to engage participants, more information sources, more places to network with like-minded individuals, um, more ideas on how to administer and scale their program, um, but still make it very personalized and impactful would be, um, would be super helpful. So I want to um, quickly, uh, we are a nonprofit research foundation, so uh, our work does not get done without, the, without partners. So thank you to Hinden Settings for helping us to get the word out about this study and for being our research advocacy partner this month. Um, you can find us, as always, at www.dirf.org. Um, follow us on Twitter and Facebook, or uh, join our community on LinkedIn. Uh, we look forward to seeing you next time on Motivate Now. Thanks, everybody. Thank you.